Welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb. Delighted that in this podcast joining me is Dr. Peter Stanbury, who we've been working with for the last couple of years on some action research work on agriculture and apparel and textiles and other areas as part of our reimagining of Innovation Forum as a platform for change, which is perhaps a grandiosely titled term for moving beyond our traditional conferences and podcasts into more coalition building and action research. And we're pleased to report that's been quite successful, not least because of the help of Peter and some others. So, Peter, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well indeed. Thank you, Toby. Always interested to hear about your reimaginings. We've certainly moved beyond just the events, virtual or otherwise, though we hope to go back to face-to-face next year. We'll probably end up with a bit of a hybrid model of some of the conferences being face-to-face and some being still in the virtual sphere. But the research will continue. And in this podcast, we want to talk about where we've got to on that, particularly around smallholder agriculture, because about 18 months ago, you and I slightly inadvertently kicked off a process after we did some work with Nestle and we said we need a coalition to try and tackle the unasked questions around smallholder resilience across commodities. And Nestle and others generously sponsored the research. And then we, you spent more than I, quite a while doing about 85 interviews to produce the report, which we'll put in the notes to this podcast. You can find on the Innovation Forum website under Innovation Accelerator. Effectively, an extensive report looking at the unasked questions around smallholder resilience. And what do we do with that now we know what they are? So just summarise for us, Peter, before we talk about the next phase of our work, what did that report uncover and what's been the reaction to it in the six, seven months since we published it? As you say, this whole process started 18 months ago. And really to try and overcome the challenge that there's historically not been very much overlap between lessons learned in different commodity types. You know, coffee people talk to coffee people, palm people talk to palm people. There's not very much sharing. As one person put it, it's a bit like everyone's on the same Venn diagram, but none of the circles intersect. So we set out to solve that problem. And what was fascinating was how certain areas of that sustainability question are understood in quite a lot of detail. What actually happens on smallholder farms, the shortcomings of smallholder farmers, the challenges to improving agronomic practices, all of that sort of thing gets paid an awful lot of attention. What we identified in our research was that there are very significant other aspects of the sustainability question, which get very little attention at all. What, for example, happens between the farm gate and port? Do we know that people working in the transport sector of smallholder commodity supply chains, do they get well paid? Do they get paid a living income? We don't know. There's very little join up between those projects. There's not really any systematic attempt to fundamentally shift practice at a country level. There's very little engagement between corporate and NGO projects and the policies, structures of host governments. There's very little engagement still between sustainability teams and procurement in large companies. So there's a whole bunch of questions that need to be addressed if sustainability in smallholder commodity supply chains is to be achieved, but no one's looking at them yet. That's where we want to go next. Just to be a devil's advocate here for a moment, why do we care? Because we've fetishised and romanticised these smallholder farmers as being needed to be saved in sometimes a slightly neo-colonial attitude, certainly in a sort of pet pilot project type attitude, which we've seen from companies. Everyone has to have their smallholder project and they don't actually get joined up. But why should anyone care about the rest of the ecosystem? Because the focus is on the farmer. Well, because if you're talking about sustainability, you can't just have sustainability in one bit of it. It's got to be the entire value chain, because otherwise it's not sustainable. Uh, You know, to come back to the term you just used, fetishization of smallholder farmers, and I think that's exactly what it is. There's this sort of sense of you almost have this idyllic smallholder farm structure in various tropical countries. And so far, the model has been around how do we improve that, rather than actually asking the question, is actually that structure in the long term broken? 
something like 84% of all the farms in the world are two hectares or less. That is going to become more extreme as you start to get massive population growth in places like Africa. So you're going to get farms divided and divided and divided between more and more children. How possible is it that a family can live off two hectares, a hectare, half hectare? It simply doesn't make sense. So actually, questions have to be opened, which is you know where I think we're hoping to go with the next phase of our work. Of do we have to think about what a different rural agricultural economy might look like in some of these countries? Now, obviously, that starts to open up much, much more complicated and difficult questions like you know land rights, land holdings, political structures in host countries. But if all we're doing is basically trying to improve a structure which can't ever actually do what it's required to do, then actually a lot of that is a waste of time and effort. Yeah, that's one of the criticisms historically of co-ops, isn't it? You sort of islands of semi-excellence surrounded by not so good circumstances. And what good does that do the overall picture? I suppose the concern for companies historically and others has been, that sounds an awful lot like interventionist sustainable development, rural policy, for example, which sounds quite scary. Much easier to have some partner with an NGO to empower 10,000 farmers over here and put that in your sustainability report than it is to engage in systemic change in these places with all of the political and other risks and costs that are attached to that. But there seems to be appetite for that from our founding members. Why do you think that is? Is that because they've simply recognised that narrow approach isn't working? Yeah, I think that is right. It is scary because it's much easier to have your little pet project where you've got smiling farmers and, and happy babies. You can stick on your the sustainability part of your website. Job done. The PR team's happy. You haven't had to upset the core of the business process, but that's not sustainable. That's not durable. That business model cannot work in the long run. And as you say, the companies and institutions that backed us and are continuing to back us in our work, I think have got to the realization that things fundamentally have to change. For example, the procurement model that they use needs to be rethought. At the moment, most commodities are dealt with through commodity exchanges, which value a sustainably produced item exactly the same as one that's not sustainable. And until you start to get more direct relationships between companies and the countries that they buy from, you're not going to get the sort of investments that are necessary to actually help develop rural economies. And I think the organisations backing us have begun to realise that painful and difficult though that shift will be, it's got to be made. And what we're able to do, both with the report and what we're working on now, is to start to find answers to, okay, what does that journey look like? You don't have to get the whole way in one step. It's let's find practical, doable things that over time can make sure the whole supply chain is sustainable. And are we saying that this opportunity can overcome the challenge of the price premium question? My understanding is that the price premium question is one that sort of gets put to bed quite a lot because it doesn't really work at scale. Therefore, the solution is to go more directly, buy more volume, buy more consistently, give more surety of supply. And therefore, you don't necessarily have to pay extra price premiums for the same goods that are traded internationally. Is that your understanding of how yeah, I think I think that's basically right. However you cut the cake, the reality is that we in the Western world need to realise that we need to pay more for our food, clothing, other things that derive from smallholder crops. The problem with the price premium model, as we're seeing in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana at the moment with the living income differential on cocoa, is that it creates a market anomaly that can't sustain. Simply, if someone's charging you 400 bucks more for your ton of cocoa, you're going to look elsewhere. That's the nature of the market economy. That's, I think, why price premium models are always going to be problematic. One has to find ways of working with market forces. Certainly from what we've seen from the research we've done so far, longer term investment in some of the communities where those crops are grown is the way forward. You're seeing, for example, Patagonia, who are trying to shift, for example, towards procurement of organic cotton. They're co-investing with farmers on the ground to help them get through that process of 
the three-year move from normal farming to organic farming. If smallholder farmers have a visibility of where their market's going to be, not just now, but two years' time, three years' time, five years' time, then they can invest. They can get to the stage where they can get better machinery. They can perhaps acquire more land to become more efficient. That visibility of market, that visibility of where they're going to sell to, and consequently what that means from the perspective of the buyer side is longer-term commitment to specific communities. I think that's got to be the way forward. Yes, and there's lots of other benefits as well. It's not just about the price premium. I mean, interestingly, uh, you're right, the cost of certain things has to go up, but the burden has to be shared over time. And there's no reason why those at the most vulnerable end of the chain should pay for that initially, because there's actually, as uncovered in our report, there's more than enough efficiencies to go around in the rest of the value chain to help deliver paying farmers more without actually costing the sourcing company any more if they actually knew a bit more about their own supply chain. But also the other thing I think which is quite interesting is over the last 18 months, we've seen expectation of what's normal shift fundamentally. And one of the impacts of that has been on increasing what might, I suppose might term crunchiness in the international supply chain. You know, for example, you've seen ports in Mexico shut down for significant periods of time because ships were having to quarantine for COVID reasons. What might the long-term implications of that sort of thing be? You know, historically, companies would say, we have these factories in these parts of the world, which we need to have supplied seamlessly with this much coffee, this much cocoa, this much whatever, whatever. And therefore, we need seamless supply chains. We need to be able to buy from commodity markets. Is that necessarily the answer to the question anymore? If you are a company and you have a close relationship with a number of communities, a number of landscapes around the world. And you know that, fine, the mix may change year on year, but you've actually got that security because you actually are working much more closely with these people. So actually, maybe the irony could be that for people in the corporate world, even if they don't think sustainability is important, that actually the way to deliver what they want, which is security of supply, maybe actually the way to do it increasingly is by developing those close relationships. So it's going to be interesting to see how those things open up. Again, obviously, what we're trying to do is to help provide tools to move in that direction. There's lots of facets to this, aren't there, which makes it so interesting. So what's next for our research agenda then, Peter? We put this report out at the end of last year, thanks to the support of Colio ACP, Clinton Foundation, Nestle, GIZ, Golden Agri Resources, and Cotton Connect. And then we held a series of discussions about it, which we got enormous interest in. Thousands, I think, of registrations and hundreds of people took part in the debate. And then we've been talking about the results since. And you and I have then spent the last six months scratching our heads a bit, saying, well, what do we do with this now? Because we can't just do the same report again, Mm. because we've already reviewed all the literature. We have now our sort of base research. Mm. So we've spent this last six months trying to work out where we get to. And of course, at the same time as that, this enormous amount of interest has arisen, not just in the traceability and resilience angles that you talked about, but in scope three, carbon emissions. And what are we going to do about carbon in the supply chain, reducing it, using it as a way to give farmers incentives? And so it seemed that joining those up is the way to go. But perhaps for the listener, the time poor listener who's already put up with us already, perhaps you could summarise where you see the next phase of the project going that incorporates those areas. Well, the starting point is we now know, because we've done the work, what needs to happen if we're going to generate sustainable smallholder supply chains. What we're doing now is to say, well, okay, let's apply those global learnings to some specific locations. Um, We're already starting in two. We're working with Cotton Connect in India and with Golden Agri Resources in Indonesia to take those global learnings and say, right, let's apply those specific learnings at a local level. And particularly where we fit in as Innovation Forum, and we're using Innovation Accelerator as the brand title for this, is what Innovation Forum has been able to do with conferences is to provide a sort of convening power. 
And it seems to us that we can do the same thing at a local level. Part of the challenge within individual landscapes is that projects don't talk to each other. You've got lots of activity going on. They don't get cohered together as a single effort aiming at systemic change. So we're seeking to do that. And specifically, there's two areas that we're looking at. I'll come to the carbon piece in a minute, but two other areas. One is smallholder market access. And we've already said that a key challenge within smallholder farming is an ongoing cycle of poverty. Often, smallholder farmers are encouraged to grow a second crop as a cash crop. The difficulty is that very often, they, in any given landscape, they grow so many, there's not a critical mass that an external buyer might be able to buy. So how can we work with a given jurisdiction um, to encourage the production of a smaller number of cash crops that we can then provide access into international markets? The second issue is this question of resilient rural development. We've already thought about the issue of the sustainability of smallholder farming as a model. What does something else look like? Now, obviously, that requires engagement at a political level as well as with farming communities. But to start to reimagine what a different rural structure might look like. So those are some of the specific issues we're looking at that follows up on the smallholder work. To pick up on what you're saying just now, Toby, the, the, the carbon agenda is really interesting. The dialogue with smallholder farmers to date has been don't cut down the forest. So it's been a very negative discussion. Whereas if what we're trying to do is to provide resilience to farming communities by providing with more secure source of income, well, if they, smallholder farmers, could acquire some financial benefit for carbon sequestration of high value habitats in their area, well, actually, then they have a positive incentive not to deforest, not to damage habitats. So the question is, how can we find a structure to effectively mean that a product which smallholder farmers are able to produce is carbon sequestration, which obviously at the moment would be an incredibly valuable thing. So that's where it fits into what we've been doing on smallholders. Toby, obviously, you're working on sort of scope three issues as well. So maybe you can say a bit more about how that actually ends up being a, a win-win also from the perspective of companies who've made high-profile commitments on carbon. Yeah, it's a complicated area, Peter, as, as you and I both know, not least if you think about soil itself. I mean, you and I visited a number of agricultural fields and facilities, and, and we've studied soil structures together in vineyards and other fields. And we know that soil structure can change every 10 yards, and the composition can change depending on the geological formations going back often millions of years. So soil carbon is not a unified thing. It can change quite quickly, and there's different levels of it in different depths of soil. So first of all, on the soil side, a huge amount needs to be done and a lot of research needs to be done to work out how do we actually count carbon accurately in say Sumatra versus West Africa versus Peru and worth noting for listeners if you haven't seen this stat but soil sequesters far more carbon than forests but forests are of course incredibly important for other reasons not not least rainfall and oxygen and species and all the other reasons they're vitally important if soil is a key forest is an enabler the question is, how do you create those incentives? And companies have been burned on this before. You know, Bloomberg, rather famously in the environmental world, at least, you know, investigated the Nature Conservancy in the last year or so, claiming that they were selling credits for forests in the US that were never going to be cut down and selling them as credits on the voluntary carbon market to big brands who were probably horrified about that. You can see how that happened because they're trying to encourage the carbon market. I suspect it happened with the best of intentions rather than for any nefarious reason. But that's just one example of the challenges of offsetting in the traditional way. The next level of that is insetting, which doesn't get discussed enough, but you know, it's supposed to mean doing carbon sequestration project, restoring nature within your supply chain, where you have that direct sourcing relationship we've been talking about companies needing to develop. So it's a fast moving space. One of the big challenges is monitoring and verification. 
if you can see the land, you can understand quite a lot with technology, whether that's LIDAR and other satellite technologies, drones, etc. But where you have you know, really intense forest cover, it's very hard to know what's going on. So the monitoring bit is very challenging. And there are lots of pilot projects taking place to try and understand how do we create something that's scalable and verifiable. The monitoring verification bit, I'm not sure it's been cracked yet. It needs to be discussed. Because the other question, which is both a sort of ethical one and a practical one, is who owns what share of the carbon? So let's say you have a palm oil producing community in Sumatra and Indonesia. They have the right to their carbon. It's on their land. What right do companies have to claim any of that in their own emissions reduction target or outputs? That's an interesting question. There's a sort of climate justice question. There's an economics question. And there's a the verification and monitoring question. So there's a lot to be unpicked there. And it seems to me that's one area to get interest from organizations who actually want to achieve wider objectives. So use the carbon angle because it's hot at the moment, no pun intended on climate change, to then go in and say, okay, well, actually, in order to tackle climate change, we need restoration. What do we need to do restoration? We need resilient rural communities who protect forests. And very interestingly, I chaired the launch of the Nestle Forest Positive Report a couple of months ago. What was very interesting about that is Nestle are very clear and very bravely clear, I think, very courageously clear in the report that actually it's not really about forests. It's about communities and it's about resilient rural communities because only by having them will you have forests. And too much of the other forest literature is all about the forest itself and these annoying people who live around its edges encroaching on it. As anyone who runs an agribusiness situation on the ground or visited smallholders will know, life isn't like that. What we're trying to do, I think, you and I now, is try and join these areas up to say, okay, how do these bits fit together based on the research we've already done? That sort of inseparability of the social and environmental issues, that you can't have one without the other, that forests don't cut themselves down or soil is not spoiled on its own. It's the anthropocentric issues which need to be addressed. Simply, you can't do one without the other. You know, and equally, if you're telling smallholder farmers that they can't cut down forests, for example, but yet they still need to grow sustainable coffee or cotton or whatever. So where do they grow their own crops? You know, there's all those sorts of trade-offs. And I think that's precisely it. It's the realisation that to deliver these very, as you say, brave or courageous global statements requires tangible changes on the ground. Uh, and that's really what we want to do. You know, how do companies that have made these very, very high-profile global announcements, what does that actually look like in terms of changes and behaviours on the ground? How are they going to start to really invest with the communities they buy from? How are they going to start to understand their interests and their needs and how that squares up against corporate interests? The only way of doing that is by looking at things on a landscape level. Uh, I mean, it's interesting that the landscape approach has been a sort of buzz term or increasingly a buzz term over the last three or four years. I'm not really quite sure that anyone really knows what it means because it does require an understanding or at least trying to get one's mind around an awful lot of complexity. How do, you know, for example, different tribal groups interrelate? How do different corporate NGO programs interrelate with the political economy on the ground? How do you affect change, which may have implications for political structures and land rights? That's all horribly complicated, but whether it's complicated or not, it is the only way we go. It's the truth that the journey is going to be bloody difficult, but it has to be taken. And the only way that it can be taken logically is by people like us actually going and finding in specific circumstances things that work, ways of doing things that can be then taken elsewhere, really sharing learning in a very, very practical way, and then showing that if there's good practice being developed in one landscape, that that can be learned elsewhere. I feel from my point of view, it's about trying to add a bit more depth to the research about how you give communities confidence to take part in these landscape approaches, because it is all about people. You need multi-party actors in there, as you say. 
you can't just be sourcing brands in some villages. You have to be all the other actors in there as well. And that happens over time. We've only just started. I think you've made that point very well, Peter. I think where we can help is by saying, okay, well, we've got this body of research we've done, 85 interviews across a number of commodities. It's been very well received. You've put all your experience into it. So the question is, how does what we do next contribute to, for furthering that? And if we can add value by pulling out really key lessons from places like Gujarat, Sumatra, elsewhere in the world with other partners, draw them together on a sort of annual state of play where we can share lessons across commodities, but also have the chance to deep dive and say, okay, well, what are the political economy issues? What are the incentives that work? And how do we pull them out into others? And this is a long-term project. It's going to take a long time. We're certainly not claiming, listener, that we can put the world to rights in two years. This is going to take a very long time. But we feel there's a need to join these things up, and that's where we're trying to play a role. So, look, Peter, uh, you and I have been talking for long enough here. I hope, listeners, has given you an overview of what we're planning. If you'd like to get in touch, I think it's fairly easy to do that. You can find our email addresses on my blog. Have a look at sustainablesmartbusiness.com, and you can contact Peter and myself or through Innovation Forum's website. And we look forward to hearing from you with your views on all this, and we'll be in touch soon. And I suggest you join up to our email list and stay updated. Have a look at the Innovation Accelerator part of the Innovation Forum website. You can sign up or download the original report there. And we look forward to staying in touch with you all. In the meantime, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Very welcome, Toby. As always, a pleasure to talk.